All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, y'all, on the line, I've got Ted Galen Carpenter, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of a great many books, including his latest Unreliable Watchdog, The News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. Welcome back to the show, Ted. How are you doing? Oh, thanks very much, Scott. Uh, happy to have you here on the show and uh, happy to talk to you about, I've been looking forward to talking to you about this piece that you wrote for antiwar.com. How will the blob react if Ukraine faces defeat? And I'll go ahead and add to that. How will the Russian blob react if the Russian military faces defeat? Best I can tell from here, and I'm no real military expert, you know, I just rely on them. Uh, it seems to me sort of like the unstoppable force versus the immovable object where you have ultimately a larger Russian military and a larger Russian nation behind it um, with superior numbers of artillery forces and all these things as they've had in, in their advantage. On the other hand, the Ukrainians have home field advantage. Their morale is high or at least higher because they're fighting in defense from a foreign invasion. And they've got a blank check from the United States and our wealthy European allies and all this high-tech equipment, uh, drones and high Mars and this and that. And, uh, I don't really know exactly how much difference that makes. And I don't know uh, what all claims from either side amount to mostly propaganda compared to what's really happening there. But it just seems to me um, like we're not anywhere near a conclusion one way or the other through victory for one side or the other or through a negotiated settlement either. So how do you assess all of that, Ted? Yeah, I think uh, that's correct. This war is going to go on for some time yet. And from the standpoint of U.S. policymakers, that's just fine. They're using Ukraine as a proxy to bleed Russia, to humiliate Russia. And the great fear that I've had uh, up to this point is that the strategy may succeed to the point that Vladimir Putin's government concludes that it has nothing to lose by escalating, including possibly even to the level of using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. However, now, uh, if the uh, staunch supporters of Ukraine prove out to be right, um, we're we're facing uh, the prospect of of uh, nuclear war with Russia, and that is something I don't think any sensible person should want. Now, my article looked at the opposite aspect. What happens if, as I think may occur this winter with the Russian counteroffensive, uh, Ukraine clearly begins to lose, and how will the foreign policy establishment? in the United States, the whole military-industrial complex, react 
And my fear is they would want to escalate, that they would want to do whatever is necessary to prevent a Western defeat in Ukraine. And that could be equally dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is something that John Mearsheimer warned about last summer, as he said, you know, just play this out. Neither side can lose this thing. From the Russians' point of view, this is of the absolute highest strategic importance. And from the Americans' point of view, even though it's really not of the highest strategic importance at all, in terms of just Ukraine itself, weakening Russia is, as you said there. And they've talked so much smack about this, um, you know, as long as it takes at any cost and including Crimea too, and all of these things, they have drawn the line in a way where Biden would have to be willing to accept absolute humiliation to just say, well, the Russians won the war. What are you going to do? We're not going to escalate this, you know, into in a way that makes it that much more dangerous, right? He doesn't have the courage to back down. Instead, he would have to pretend, look at how brave I am by escalating, right? Well, John Mearsheimer is one of our finest foreign policy thinkers, and he is right far more often than he's wrong. And in this case, I think he's definitely right. I don't see the U.S. foreign policy military, military establishment backing down if its proxy begins to lose. And yet that is probably the most likely outcome. One of the uh, statistics that came out with not all that much fanfare was a comment by General uh, General Milley, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff last autumn, in which he pointed out that the Russian forces had lost more than 100,000 dead and wounded in the war. But what he added, which received surprisingly little attention, was that Ukraine had also suffered more than 100,000 dead and wounded. But Russia's population is three and a half times that of Ukraine's. And if there is a war of attrition, there's almost no way that Ukraine can win. Russia can absorb these, uh, these terrible casualties far easier than Ukraine can. And Putin is not, uh, I think, shy about shedding Russian blood to achieve his objectives. So looking over the medium and long term, prospects for Ukraine victory are not very good at all. Yeah, you know, the Americans, you hear them talk from time to time, especially the think tank types, I guess, about how, yeah, no, it's good to kill Russians and send Russians home in body bags. Because then, see, it's just like in Afghanistan in the 80s, Ted. It causes controversy inside Russia, and it'll undermine support for Putin and what he's doing. And popular opinion will turn harder and harder against him, just like uh, poor Gorbachev in Afghanistan. Stuck with that war, right? Well, I've pointed out that the U.S. is using the 1980s Afghanistan strategy in Ukraine. But... There is a huge difference. Ukraine is far, far more important to Russia than Afghanistan ever was. Afghanistan was a bit of a sideshow for the uh, for the Russian military and the Russian political establishment, the Soviet uh, political and military establishment, to be more accurate. 
Uh, Ukraine is not. Ukraine is a central strategic interest, a core security interest for Russia. Mm-hmm. And Russia is not going to accept defeat in Ukraine. This is not Afghanistan repeated from the standpoint of Moscow. It's only uh, Afghanistan repeated from the standpoint of Washington. Mm-hmm. And that is a very, very dangerous situation. Now, if I uh, know my history right, I hope, correct me if I'm wrong, but Afghanistan was the only stand that was not part of the USSR, right? Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and all of them were. But here we're talking about Ukraine was not just a member of the USSR. They were actually one of the republics, right? Not just a, in other words, not just a member of the Warsaw Pact uh, alliance with the commies, but one of the closer to Moscow countries, even compared to, say, you know, Poland, which was under Soviet domination, but wasn't an actual member of the, I don't know how they break that down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Ukraine was a constituent part of the Soviet Union. And it was also realistically the second most important part of the Soviet Union. So this, this is a high level interest strategically and economically for Russia. And the U.S. and its allies ignored that point as it pushed NATO right to the border of Russia, using Ukraine very much as a pawn, making Ukraine a NATO asset, and indeed almost a NATO member in all but name. The United States and its allies were pouring weapons into Ukraine, training Ukrainian troops, uh, conducting, in uh, at least a few cases, joint cyber attacks with Ukraine on Russian targets. So the point that some of the critics have made, well, there wasn't really a prospect given French and German opposition to Ukrainian membership in in NATO. There was little prospect that Kiev would be able to join the alliance anytime soon. That misses the point that Ukraine was becoming a crucial NATO asset militarily against Russia. And eventually that produced the kind of reaction that one should have expected. But of course, our brilliant political leaders apparently didn't expect. Uh, Well, I mean, that's a separate question, you know, whether they actually were kind of baiting them into it, I think is at least a reasonable hypothesis. I mean, the the policy one year ago was to tell Putin, you better not. But they were not willing to negotiate in good faith whatsoever. And they've bragged about that since then. Derek Chollett from the National Security Council told the War on the Rocks podcast that we refused to discuss NATO with them whatsoever. We wouldn't even talk about it. We wouldn't even agree to put it on the table for discussion whatsoever. Um, So I think there's a... Well, do you think there's a real question of whether they were kind of, I don't know, deliberately provoking it, but maybe thinking, you know, 40%, you know, 60%, we want them to not invade, but 40%, if they do, it wouldn't be that bad anyway. As you said, the Afghan model, right? We'll bleed them to bankruptcy. It'll be great. Just like bin Laden just finished doing to us. Yeah, I think that thought was in their mind, but the primary goal was to humiliate Russia to achieve the objective of bringing Ukraine in as a uh, NATO frontline state, a NATO asset, 
and they underestimated Russia's determination to prevent that from happening. Uh, you know, I, I never underestimate the possibility of malice in U.S. Uh, foreign policy, but I'm also aware that one should not attribute to malice uh, things that can be explained by sheer arrogance and incompetence. And I think that was probably the more likely explanation for what Washington was doing. Mm. Which it makes sense. Like if you take the timeline of last year where, you know, they met in July um, after the Americans had done their big military exercises in the Black Sea. And then Putin wrote that article about, you know, his claim of his interpretation of the history of Ukraine and Russia right. and all that. And, and then what they do, they brought Zelensky to D.C., and they issued all these new strategic partnership plans and reaffirmed their intention to bring Ukraine into NATO and all these things. So, in other words, uh, you know, uh, agreeing with your theory here of just their arrogance blinding them that this is the only way that they know of to deal with something like this. They weren't going to say to Putin, OK, look, man, here, let's negotiate a way out of this. Their immediate take was, oh, and I, I meant to say there too, he had built up his forces um, on the Russian side of the border as well last summer, summer before last, 2021. And then their reaction was just to escalate, right? To to yes. to promise right. more strategic partnership, more interoperability, and all of these things. The Russians will have to back down to us. We'll never back down to them. I've written a couple of pieces on what I've called uh, Washington's style of capitulation diplomacy, that there are rare cases in which there is genuine bargaining taking place when the United States has a certain objective. Instead, they want to gain the complete humiliation of the other party, the complete capitulation of the other party. And I think that was what was operating with their relationship with Russia. Um, going back a good many years, not just the Biden administration, but uh, previous administrations as well, that Russia uh, was a weak country and that we could achieve all of our policy objectives without Moscow resorting to force. That was a bluff. I remember so many statements from U.S. officials and, and throughout the news media in 2020 and 2021 that Putin's threats, his warnings of red lines not to be crossed with respect to Ukraine, that was all a bluff. We only found out differently. It wasn't a bluff. Yeah, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta 9, so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town, but then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally, because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. Thehempspot.com. Spell the... THC. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. 
you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Well, so now I know that really you're right up there, at least tied for first place in Washington, D.C. with people who warned against NATO expansion in the 1990s. At the very least, I know you said so in 1994. I would not be surprised to find right. out that you said so even earlier than that. Um, and clearly your arguments then and everybody who agreed with you, too. The argument was we're drawing a dividing line in Europe. We're leaving the Russians on the other side of it. They're going to see this as a hostile threat and they're going to end up reacting. But then, so here's my setup for the question though is, yeah, but it took 30 years for them to react and maybe there's a correlation, but not a causation. The American war party says that, come on, Ted, this is just a pretext. The reality is that Vladimir Putin wants to be a great czar. And so he wants to reincorporate the four Eastern oblasts of Ukraine and his land bridge to Crimea and all these things before he dies of old age somehow. And so then he pretended to be upset about all this NATO thing because he read a couple of good Cato books about it and said, oh, there's my pretext. So what do you say to that? Well, first of all, the objection to NATO expansion from the Russian side uh, was already occurring under Boris Yeltsin. And Putin's initial uh, comments about it were almost regretful. Why are you doing this? You are damaging relations with Russia, and there's no need to do that. It was only when the United States and its allies kept pushing that his warnings became less friendly and far more uh, pointed. Uh, to me, there's no doubt that Putin had ambitions to restore Russia's power to at least some extent. But no country, no major power would tolerate having a hostile military alliance move to its border without reacting badly to that. That is an extremely provocative, unfriendly act. And any government that was the target of that act is going to eventually dig in its heels and respond militarily. It just took enough time for Russia to build up the military strength that it felt it needed and to conclude there was no chance of compromise with the United States and the other major NATO countries on this issue. And when that happened, the invasion of Ukraine began. Mm. Well, so now back to the beginning here about the consensus among the American War Party and how they might react in the case of very bad news in this war. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but I know you'll already have an opinion about it either way. Um, there's this study by um, not just an article about it, but a study by Max Abrams and Richard Hanania, where they kind of chart out in a professor kind of a way 
on graph paper and everything about the proximity of foreign policy thinkers to Washington, D.C. and their views and where essentially the professors tend to be more realists or doves, but the think tankers are all hawks. And um, they even start out with the example from the fall of 2002 when all those international relations experts said we should not attack Iraq. But they just didn't count because it was the think tanks had the consensus that said, you know, we damn well better and we're going to. And um, so I just wonder about, uh, well, the social psychology of this whole thing. I mean, you cite in this article about, you know, what Ann Applebaum thinks. And my initial reaction is who cares what Ann Applebaum thinks? But then the answer is a lot of people care what Ann Applebaum thinks and the completely ridiculous and frankly stupid and wrong things that she thinks are very representative of the consensus of the the rulers in Washington. This is what they talk about at their cocktail parties. This is the editorial line at the Washington Post, all for good reason. This is what they believe. And there doesn't seem to be much room in there for, you know, you got to hand it to him. Old Ted Carpenter at Cato, he did make some correct predictions and has some astute analysis here. You just don't get that at all, right? There's just no nuance. There's no, uh, you know, real break in the consensus. It's total groupthink up there. Yeah, there's very little uh, self-reflection either about their own mistakes, which are now uh, enormous in number and not just on the Ukraine issue, as we all know a good many issues going back decades. And yet there's this pervasive unwillingness to admit error. Um, I go into this in the Unreliable Watchdog book, the the alliance, if you will, between the news media and political leaders and officials in the national security state, the CIA, the Pentagon, the State Department, and so on. And this is one big community that has become a bubble. They talk to each other. They reinforce each other's uh, beliefs and assumptions, often beliefs and assumptions that are horribly wrong. But that is the uh, community that determines policy. And outsiders may be absolutely correct on a particular issue. It doesn't matter, unfortunately. The uh, that blob, and that's an accurate term for it, that was coined by, uh, ironically, uh, Barack Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor, uh, Ben Rhodes. But that thing just uh, continues to dominate policy, mm-hmm. and we have really seen that with Ukraine, where dissent has been vilified and often silenced simply because that is challenging the conventional wisdom and the network of vested interests. Let's face it, a lot of people are prospering from the $100 billion of U.S. tax money being given to Ukraine, and uh, they don't want to give that up. That's a lot of money. And yeah, uh, I appreciate the way you talk about how ironic it is that Ben Rhodes coined that term since he could be the executive vice president of the blob himself. He's the guy that told the New York <laughs> Times Very last, true. last February or March that this is our redemption. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine erases Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen. None of that ever happened. All that imperial hubris and overreach. That era is now the past and the future is now America redeemed, fighting for the little guy against the evil empire. How do you like it? Well, that was never uh, an accurate description of U.S. policy at any point in uh, recent decades, certainly. And uh, I don't think you remember that time we saved France from the Nazis? Yeah, that's the probably the last thing they can cite that uh, fits their fits their narrative. But what we're going to see is not redemption for the blunders in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq and. Syria and so many other places, it's simply going to be the latest and most serious blunder that the establishment has committed. Yeah. And speaking of which, in the last few minutes here, you know, that narrative that the terror war is over is really not right. And you have a piece here about at uh, at Cato.org about staying in Syria. There was just a new report that came out yesterday. The DOD claims they killed 700 ISIS terrorists in Iraq and Syria in the last year, Ted. So what does that tell you? Yeah, the the so-called war on terror is still going on. It's just not receiving nearly as much attention uh, that it was receiving a few years ago. But it's still taking place. A lot of uh, attacks on innocent civilians total disruption of a number of other societies, the tragedies in Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, horrifying situations that the U.S. brought about. And yet those things are continuing. They're just now flying beneath the radar Mm -hmm. because of so much attention to Ukraine. Yeah, well, you know, at the end of 2019, when somebody fired some rockets at Americans at a base in, or was it the end of 2018 now? I'm getting old and seen um, all. Somebody fired rockets at an American base in Iraq, and there was a back and forth that culminated in Donald Trump's assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Quds Force. And then the Ayatollah fired some missiles at an empty corner of an American base in Iraq. That could have escalated to a real war with Iran right there. And there was a reporter, I forget her name now, but an Iraqi reporter that I interviewed that said that the area where this base was, there was no telling who fired those rockets. Yeah, it could have been Khatib al-Hezbollah, this uh, group, um, you know, said to be backed by Iran, this Shiite militia. But it could have been ISIS, too. And or or, you know, Al Qaeda types, and they would have every reason in the world to do a false flag type attack on Americans to try to get us to fight against the Shiites. Um, you know, our allies who we've been embedded with over there all these years when we're not fighting against them, we're fighting for them. And so it wasn't even really clear who did that attack that ended up, you know, coming very close to uh, leading, you know, to an actual war between the United States and Iran. And we had a more recent incident, too, just a few uh, months after uh, Joe Biden took office, in which there were alleged attacks by uh, pro-Iranian Iraqi forces on targets in Iraq and Syria. And Biden responded with uh, missile attacks 
again on, on targets in both of those countries, supposedly uh, terrorist installations. So th- again, this thing is simmering, and it wouldn't take that much to bring it to a boil again. And then, and but the whole reason we're there is to fight against the radical Sunnis, right? It's not the the pretext for our occupation in Syria and Iraq is fighting against what's left of ISIS. And yet, as we're talking about here, we're almost, you know, we're in a position to get into a conflict with our de facto allies, the Iranians' friends and the Shiites, especially in Iraq. Well, keep in mind, uh, the uh, intervention in Syria was largely to overthrow Bashar al-Assad because of his alliance with Iran. So you you can't keep the enemy straight without a scorecard when it comes to U.S. policy in that part of the world. Yeah, it's crazy. So now, what are they really doing in Syria? Because, I mean, obviously, if the war was really just against the Islamic State, Donald Trump announced victory against the Islamic State as a state back at the very beginning of 2018. He finished up Iraq War III in the first year of his presidency there. They took back you know, Raqqa is, has been under the control of the SDF and the Shiites took back control over Mosul in Iraq and all of that. And so I wonder if you think that this is really still just a pretext. Fighting ISIS in Syria is just a pretext to continue to keep the pressure on Iran's friend Assad. I think that's largely true. Um, there's There's certainly a determination among hawks in Washington to weaken Iran uh, as much as humanly possible. I mean, that's pretty much been U.S. policy for decades. And anyone who dare become an ally of Iran uh, is is courting trouble. That was Bashar Assad's great sin. It wasn't that he, he was a brutal dictator. Yes, he certainly is. But the fact that he was in bed with the uh, the Islamic government in in Tehran, that was his great sin. The United States has had no problem with brutal dictators and supporting them over the decades, for heaven's sakes. One of the closest relationships is with the Saudi royal family and another one with uh, the government of Egypt. Both of those are horrifyingly corrupt and brutal. But Washington has no problem with that. They did have a problem with Assad because of Assad's support of Iran. And uh, that appears to be a high-priority item. I would watch, again, just beneath the radar, while all the attention is on uh, Ukraine, watch out for this one, escalation of the confrontation with Iran and any country that allies itself with Iran. Yep. Well, and they just finished essentially tearing up the JCPOA. Biden's on video announcing we're not getting back into the nuclear deal. That's a whole other avenue of escalation there. But, you know, I don't know. America, we got our act together, Ted. Everything is great here. And that's why we're ready to remake Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba. And who am I leaving off the list that needs to go? There was a coup in Peru, I guess. The good guys won there, meaning the American puppets won in that one. Am I right? Good guess. I don't want to get into that one because I don't think there are good guys on either side of that dispute. But uh, 
The United States has ambitious objectives that greatly, greatly exceed the ability of Washington to achieve those objectives. And very few members of the defense and foreign policy establishment in the U.S., the national security state, seem to understand that at all. Uh, we're riding high and are strategically overextended, economically overextended by a huge margin. All right, you guys, that's Ted Galen Carpenter, senior fellow at the Cato Institute at Cato.org. Is Washington's dubious Syria intervention continues at antiwar.com. How will the blob react if Ukraine faces defeat? And the new book is Unreliable Watchdog, the news media and U.S. foreign policy. Thank you very much, Ted. Appreciate you. My pleasure. The Scott Horton Show, Antiwar Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.